93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with Stephen Hyden. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and UpRocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Today we're going to be talking about Rolling Stone Magazine and Jan Winner and cocaine and the 70s and the 60s and the 80s and the the glory years of of rock magazines and, and publishing and uh, when people would go crazy in the late 20th century because there was so much money in advertising. Before the fall, before the internet, before everything went to hell. That's what we're going to be talking about today. I have Joe Hagen on the podcast. Uh, he wrote a book about Jan Winner, publisher of Rolling Stone. It's called Sticky Fingers. It came out last month. Um, I finished it last week. It's an amazing book. If you are at all interested in Rolling Stone Magazine's history, in Jan Winner as a pivotal cultural figure in the media and just shaping how the rock narrative has unfolded in the last 50 years. Um, if you love funny, fascinating stories about cocaine abuse by famous people, if you love all those things or any of those things, uh, I highly recommend reading this book. It was fun to talk to Joe about it. You know, Joe spent a long time. He, he, it's an interesting story with this book because he, uh, he had Jan Winner's cooperation yeah, he spent dozens of hours interviewing Winner about his life in the magazine. Joe also had access to Jan Winner's personal archive, which apparently is like 500 boxes of correspondence with various rock stars. Basically, every rock star that you've ever cared about, Jan Winner had a relationship with. Um, so Joe had access to all this stuff, and Jan Winner also encouraged all of his rock star friends to talk to Joe. So. There's interviews in the book with Paul McCartney, Bruce Springsteen, Mick Jagger, Bono, um, as well as all of the people that made Rolling Stone what it was in its glory years and afterward. Um, but then uh, Joe wrote his book and he showed it to Jan Winner and Jan Winner didn't like the book. <laughs> and he publicly didn't like the book. He, he has disparaged it, which I think has actually helped the book in a lot of ways because... I know for me personally, when I first heard about the book, it, it seemed like an interesting thing. Like, I felt like I wanted to read it at some point. But then when I heard that Jan Winner hated the book, it shot to the top of my reading list. <laughs> it's like, I got to read this book. Uh, and I'm glad I did because it's a very candid book. You know, it's been criticized for not being fair by some people or being overly harsh, but that wasn't the impression that I got. I think it is a fair book. I think it takes into account a lot of the damage that Jan Wenner left in his wake in, in terms of his personal relationships, his ruthlessness, uh, and how that rubbed people the wrong way. Uh, but ultimately, I think the impression that you get from the book after you're done reading it is that this is a great man. Warts and all, uh, this, was a, this was a person who definitely left his mark on American culture, uh, for better or worse. And uh, you know, the book is, I think, substantial enough to, to really take a full accounting of that. You know, the achievements, the... Uh, sort of things that he didn't do as well, <laughs> you know, the mistakes that he made. Um, it's all in the book, and it really adds up, uh, I think, to just an engrossing read. It's 500 pages, and I, and I flew through this thing in a, matter of, in a matter of days. It was fun talking to Joe about that, and all that went into the book, and uh, we're going to get to that in a moment. But before we do, I want to tell you about one of our sponsors for this week, and it is our old friend's at Harry's. Now, if you have ever seen a photo of me or you know me, you know that I'm a hair suit man. I have a beard. I have fur coming out of my face at all times. And I need a good razor in order to keep myself looking semi-presentable. And uh, with Harry's, I know that I can get 
a great shave at a fair price, which is why over 3 million guys have switched to Harry's. Now, uh, if you want to be one of those people who makes the Harry's plunge, I have a free trial offer for Celebration Rock listeners. Uh, what you need to do is you go to harrys.com backslash rock, and you will get a free trial set that includes a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision engineered blades, a rich lathering shave gel, and the, tra- the travel blade cover. And really, isn't it all about the travel blade cover? Isn't that the best part? I think it is. So go to the website. Again, that's harrys.com backslash rock, and you will get that trial set for completely free, and you can stop the fur from shooting out of your face. Okay, so me and Joe, we talked about the book. We got into the relationships that Jan Winter had with people like Paul McCartney and Paul Simon and Mick Jagger, uh, as well as uh, the fallout from his, I guess, strained relationship with Jan Winter. It was a fascinating conversation, and uh, I think you guys are going to enjoy it. So again, here is me and Joe Hagen talking about Sticky Fingers. So I think... uh, my reaction to uh, the news that there was going to be a Jan Winter biography was probably pretty common. You know, like I, I was interested in the idea. It seemed very intriguing. I thought, okay, I have to put this book on my reading list. And then when I read all the stories about how Jan Winter didn't like the book, yeah. it immediately went to the top of my list. I thought, okay, <laughs> this, this must be a good book. Um, I mean, obviously, I, you know, it seems like that publicity uh, has helped uh, you know, generate interest. But I'm wondering, like, for you, were you on any level hurt by that reaction? Like, when you sent him this book? I mean, you obviously yeah, spent a lot of time. Yeah, I was. There. Absolutely. I mean, I was not. It brought me no joy. I mean, I, it's not that I didn't expect some uh, displeasure on his part. I didn't know what form it would take, you know, whether he was going to call me or send me some big email about what he was upset about, but he never really even responded. He just began to shut down, you know? Um, and so, uh, yeah, I was a little bit, uh, it's stressful, you know, writing about a living person is stressful yeah. because at some point, obviously there's going to be a big, uh, divide between the way they see themselves and the, what is coming up in all the reporting. Right. And especially in this case, because you've got, this incredibly detailed archive that I had access to. I conducted just a lot of interviews, and um, Jan was at a stage in his life where he really wanted kind of the big great man treatment. And, um, you know, I don't think that, I don't think the book uh, makes some case that he isn't a great man. I think it really emphasizes that what he did to you know, create the institution of Rolling Stone. But, uh, you know, it's, um, it's a warts and all, and who wants to see the warts? So, uh, especially here at this 50-year anniversary when he's sort of checking out, you know, I think it's just difficult for him. And so to your question, I, you know, yeah, I, I, uh, it was, it's not been, uh, it was a rough ride there for, for a while. I mean, I'm just surprised a little bit by his reaction. I mean, d- didn't he know on some level that the book would be like this, that it would be like a tough, like, you know, fair-minded book? Well, I don't know what he thought, you know. I mean, listen, there's no more powerful force than self-delusion, you know. <laughs> um, and, you know, he's somebody who kind of has created his own reality for so long, you know, and lived really in the kind of like big tent of his own making, the big Rolling Stone world, you know. 
he's been told, imagine all the rock stars that have come to him seeking favor, you know, in one form or another. And I guess you could easily come to believe that you were well-loved, you know. Uh, but And he is well-loved by some people, but, you know, that a lot of his life was spent um, in a series of transactions with rock stars, and not all of them behind the scenes, it turned out, uh, were happy about some of their treatment or some of the history they had. A lot of that came out in the book. So, yeah, there you go. I mean, do you think that was it? Like, that's the thing that set him off? Just Well, I think he he didn't like the title. But listen, let's just go to the more fundamental thing. I mean, the book is a biography of him. But it's really using him as a prism through which to look at a lot of other things, too. You know, the whole culture and how the culture got built, how it morphed over time. And when you arrive to this moment in the book, um, you have to contend with the fact that there was, you know, the the critique of the baby boomers and the rock and roll age and everything that it turned into, you know, and all the the politics of it, the the cultural manifestations it later took, you know, in the last, say, 20, 25 years with the sort of tabloid culture that he was a part of also with Us Weekly. I mean... um, it's not all positive. And, uh, you know, even the rock and roll that we all love uh, has been a lot of layers of nostalgia have been kind of slathered on. And I sort of tried to peel a lot of that back. And that's probably not exactly what he had in mind, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating because, you know, obviously your book came out in October. And uh, the week that this podcast posts, there's going to be this two-part documentary on HBO that Alex Gibney did. Right. Which, have you seen that, by the way? No, I haven't. I haven't looked at it yet. I saw it uh, the other day, and it was fa- it was really interesting watching that after reading your book because a lot of what you talk about in your book is a, is epitomized in that film. Like that film is very much celebrating. Uh, you know, the last 50 years, kind of looking at the last 50 years of history through a Rolling Stone lens. Yeah. So it hits a lot of the bases. Right. Uh, you know, John Lennon, it talks about uh, Hunter S. Thompson, sort of all the iconic things, and not very critical at all. Right. And uh, just just having these two things come out, like, so close to each other, uh, it's a really sort of illuminating thing, because in a way I feel like your book was critiquing this documentary, even though obviously the documentary didn't exist yet. (laughs) Yeah, well, look, this is one thing to know and to observe here is that he's the executive producer on it. Right. That is his vision of his own history, you know? And so that's what I was contending with in terms of, okay, I'm going to interview 250 people, I'm going to spend a year and a half in this dense archive just sort of pouring through correspondence and letters and truly trying to make heads or tails of different things that happened and creating this mosaic, really, of his history and the history of the times. And it was much more, you know, what was revealed through the research and the reporting was a much more nuanced kind of, uh, in some cases, dark and messy, really, mm-hmm. uh, world, you know? I mean, you know, just to use a, an example of, like, uh, you know, something that was a little bit influential for me, just thinking about how to imagine this world from what I was getting. I mean, think about, like, Mad Men, which is like this, you know, look, 
you know, more critical look at that world. And it's all sort of into the details and the soap opera and the sets and the behaviors. And, and uh, you know, in a way, that's what I was seeing, right. that version of history, rather than the one that you're seeing on that HBO thing. And uh, just to use the TV metaphor. Um, and I thought that's the real critical, interesting history, right? Yeah, I mean, some of the reactions that have come out, and the reactions to the book have been have been largely positive, but there have been some, you know, associates of, of, of winners who have, who have spoken out. And sure. I know, like, John Landau was in that New York Times story, and he talked about yeah. how, like, this, you know, Joe Hagan is a serious writer, but he could have maybe been more empathetic uh, yeah. to Jan Winner. And there's also been some criticism of, like, focusing too much on uh, Jan Winner's sexual history. Sure. Uh, I, just wondered, I just wanted to get your take on that. First, yeah. on sort of the empathetic criticism, yeah. and also why did you focus so much on his sexuality in the book? Right. Well, that was a no-brainer. I mean, you know, Jan helped craft the mythology of rock and roll <laughs> during the height of its importance. Right. And was, you know, one of the kind of secretly gay architects of everything we came to know and understand. And it was not inco- inconsequential at all. I mean, A, it was like he had this very um, complicated marriage to a woman whose family put up all the money. Okay, that's something. Yeah. Uh, number two, Jan always said, he said in my interviews with him in the present day and in the past, even before Rolling Stone, he would write things that about rock and roll is about sex. It is sex defined, he said. He understood the sexual essence of the music, and he captured it eventually, especially through the sort of image making of Annie Leibovitz, and just in general, he understood that that was the potency, right? And for me not to explore, how did he kind of get along as a gay man during all that period, have this kind of like functional marriage that was actually, you know, she was a part of the formula for success, frankly. Um, There was just a lot there. I had to understand it. And if you read Rolling Stone back in the 70s, they were not shying away from sexuality. you know, this is, uh, and Jan Winter, by the way, published Us Weekly. From, you know, there's like, there's a lot of kind of uh, ironies here right. uh, in that uh, commentary. But to me, um, it was important to understand um, Jan's worldview. Now, to the other things about empathy, I think the book is empathetic. You know, I think it makes you understand why he became the way he did, right. especially in the childhood and the formation, his mother and you know, this kind of terrible woman who, you know, abandons him when he's 13 and says, you know, you're on your own, Buster Brown. I mean, he's really kind of tragic um, aspect of it. But also, uh, I I was thinking about this because, you know, Landau and I talked about all this when the book came out. And he he told me in advance he was going to put those quotes in the Times. I totally got it. He's in a he's walking a fine line because he under, he knows that I worked incredibly hard on this book and he knows and he's in the book criticizing Jan right just by the way you know? <laughs> um, and uh, but um, you know listen I didn't write this book through the retroactive lens of feeling sorry for Jan I wrote this book to capture what he was actually like right and you know uh, that was you know about a man who was powerful and how did he get that power and how did he wield the power? And that's, um, you know, maybe there are moments that call for empathy, but, um, he was not himself a, uh, hugely empathetic person. Yeah. I mean, I, 
I agree with everything you just said, by the way. I mean, when I read the book, I didn't really look at it from the perspective of, is this guy likable or not? It's how did this guy create the world that now exists? You know, because he was a pivotal part, obviously, in how rock and roll is discussed in the narrative of rock and roll. He is one of the primary architects of that. And that, yeah. as a critic, that's always fascinated me about him. And I have to say that after reading the book, it deepened my appreciation of, of what he accomplished and, and, and how he set about doing it. As, mis- as messy and, uh, as, and as fraud as it could be. Um, I mean, Jan Winter, to me, has always had an interesting position uh, in terms of like a, just a generational figure. And, and you talked about this earlier, about him sort of being like a baby boomer figurehead in a way. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how old you are. Are, are you in your 40s? Or be- yeah, I'm 46. Okay, so I'm 40. So, I mean, we're part of that generation that kind of came up behind the hippies. That's and, right. And there's always been, I, I, I know like among my generation of writers, I feel like there's always been like an edible uh, relationship almost to Rolling Stone and Jan Winter, where there, on one hand there's a lot of admiration, but there's also this feeling of like, we have to kill this guy metaphorically. Yes. We have to take him down. And I don't, I'm not saying that you had this with that, with, with that book, but I'm, in a sense, I mean, did any of that stuff fuel your interest in him? Well, listen, uh, you know, he says in the book, or he was quoted years ago in the ad week, and I've always thought about this myself, that the Generation X, which I am a part of this kind of like in-between generation, was always sort of like this subset of the boomers. You know, like uh, we were living in their shadow and kind of like continuing the, um, you know, their narrative, you know, uh, or having to contend with it and, and deal with it. In a way, it's like um, it's hard to imagine a more journalistic generation than Generation X because we're sort of like both in it and outside of it at the same time and able to judge it. And we always did judge it, you know, um, I feel. Right. You know, um, but we also love it, right? right? I mean, I grew up with all that music. I love all that music to this day, you know, the 60s sensibility and music and sound. And, of course, I'm a big fan myself, so completely committed to it. But, um, but um, you know, when I went into this book, I remember thinking, well, you know, I didn't, uh, you know, I presumed that the book would be just a series of rock and roll um you know, anecdotes, you know, the kind that you see on the bookshelf in the, in the bookstore in the music section, you know. But as I got into it, I was like, I had to follow the story. And the story wasn't that. It was something different. It was Jan as a social climber. Right. And as a guy who kind of used the rock and roll revolution to, you know, um, navigate new worlds. He goes into journalism. He goes into politics. He goes into Hollywood. And he goes, you know, he keeps climbing up the ladder until he kind of builds rock and roll into this big, you know, institution. So that was, as I did that and got through into that, you know, that's where the conclusions and the tone and the kind of feel of the book come from were kind of organic to the material, you know. So if there's a critique built into it, it may be partly my, you know, kind of uh, generational chip on the shoulder. I don't know, maybe that's sort of built into that somehow, but really it's the material. And it's also a kind of like, I had to take a kind of um, a little bit of an arched eyebrow at Jan's kind of outrageous egotism, you know? I mean, there's just no other reaction to have, (laughs) you know? (laughs) 
um, in some ways. Um, and I was, you know, just to add one extra uh, wrinkle to that is like, I was really influenced by a lot of the writers that were in Rolling Stone in the 70s. Right. And they, had they been writing about Jan, could not have avoided, you know, just some of the things I was observing and seeing. I mean, it was just, uh, and I talk a little bit about this in the afterword of the book, about how, you know, living, somebody growing up with Tom Wolfe and Hunter S. Thompson, I felt obligated to sort of... Um, commune with them in writing this book well, and, on some level. You and, know? and I just wonder if deep down, like the pragmatic part of Jan Winner, or, or the, the publisher, the editor part of Jan Winner, I, I feel like he couldn't help but appreciate this book. Because if you had written the book that he wanted you to write, which is the sort of, hey, guy, the, you know, the, the great man book, like, uh, sure. and all the rock star anecdotes, no one would have cared about the book. It would have gone and went in like a week. But the book that you wrote, so much more compelling because of the honesty and because of the candor, yeah. it, like you said, it is more in the style. I, I mean, Rolling Stone was part of that uh, style of journalism, which was, I mean, obviously there was a lot of glamorization of rock stars and all that stuff. And, and Yeah, even, but that was later. If right. you read the 70s stuff, it's so, it's brutal. Like pulling the you curtain know? back on celebrity. And yeah, I mean, because that yeah. was the height of rock and roll's power, and so they treated it like a power, you know, like something that you could you know, uh, shoot spitballs at. I and mean, then they, they, they were ripping people and putting crazy gossip in the, in the random notes. And it was all very, uh, raw and kind of free and, um, an arch as well. You know, there was a real irreverence towards, towards it all in the seventies. And in addition to the kind of, um, you know, later it became much more, uh, you know, um, uh, kind of, uh, with the sober tone of awe, right? That, that was sort of more, that evolved over time. But if you look at the early 70s, kind of golden age of Rolling Stone, it was much more irreverent. Right. And um, I felt, you know, I wanted to kind of bring a little of that in and just show um, that, um, that they didn't, you know, at one time, at the height of their powers, uh, uh, the height of John's powers and the height of Rolling Stone's powers, you know, fear and loathing in Las Vegas. I mean, Jesus, that's not, uh, you know, that's not reverent, you know? Right. And how could, uh, it's sort of the irony. It was, would Jan want, you know, uh, a book about himself to be that way? But that's, you know, that, that's the contradiction of Jan Winter too. Right. I mean, in, the other thing about the book too is that for all like for as tough as it is at times and, and and even with the candor that when you are writing about the 60s and 70s period of Rolling Stone it can't help but be glamorous like right. when i was reading those chapters i flew through those chapters i mean that is like yeah. my fantasy yeah. era basically you know like just the idea that like Jan Winner could walk up to Pete Townsend in yeah. 1968 after a who concert and be like hey do you want to do an interview and then they go back to his yeah. apartment and talk for like you know till dawn or whatever right. i mean even, yeah it's wonderful yeah even yeah. yeah even with the candor it's like i can't help but glamorize that no matter no matter what i hear about jan winter from that time it's like holy shit this is yeah. incredible that they were able to do this absolutely and when you f go into the early you know into the 70s and they have this big romantic party scene going on and all this wild stuff's going on and they're kind of like as free as any humans on earth have ever been you know um and as as kind of privileged and and you know it's romantic 
you know, you can't uh, take that away from it. And I, you know, I, I felt like uh, I really wanted to capture that too. Yeah. I want to go back a little bit to just the beginning of the of, of the book, how it got started. I mean, it's my understanding that you basically like walked up to Winter like in a coffee shop. Yeah, that's right. There's a coffee shop in the little village, village we live in, and it's called Murray's. And um, I recognized him right away. I knew who he was just from being in the business, and I'd once interned at Rolling Stone years ago. And uh, so I just said, "Hey, Jan Winter," you know, shook his hand, told him I was. I knew who he was, you know, what, what are you doing around here? And then he had just moved into that area. And uh, I was sort of surprised that a writer, I was writing for New York Magazine at the time, was sort of in the area and was curious and invited me to his house. And, you know, I just got to know him a little bit. And obviously, you, I mean, did you know at that point um, that you wanted to write a book or did that come later? Oh, that was much yeah, it was later. I mean, I had no idea. I, I was just sort of... Hey, this is fun, you know. <laughs> what a kind of weird, strange, serendipitous thing to run into this guy, and um, was just sort of gawking really at his wealth and curious about his, you know, where he was in his life, but also wanting to get the stories, you know, hear about some of the rock and roll stories. And I would just sort of, yeah. So tell me about Dylan, you know, and he would, <laughs> you know, churn up a few memories that were fascinating. But nothing really came of it. And I actually, at one point, I asked him, are you going to write a memoir? You should write a memoir. And he said, oh, I've, I had something going, and it just sort of fell apart. And, and that turned out to be the Lewis McAdams book. There was a book that he had attempted. And uh, we did, but we didn't really pursue it. And then one day, you know, flash forward maybe a year and a half, he um, took me out to lunch and uh, we ostensibly to see if I wanted to work for Rolling Stone. And uh, I was a little reluctant to do that because I was enjoying New York Magazine. But he um, then he popped this other question. Well, how about writing my biography? And that's kind of where things began. All right, we have more of my interview with Joe Hagen coming up here in a minute. But I just want to tell you about one of our sponsors for this week, and it is our friends at Brooklinen. You spend a third of your life in your sheets. Are they taking care of you the way they should be? With Brooklinen.com, you can get the high-quality sheets and bedding you deserve at a price that won't keep you up at night. Now, I love my Brooklyn sheets, and I want you to try these sheets because I know you'll love them too. And for my listeners, Celebration Rock Pod listeners, brooklinen.com has an exclusive offer. You're going to get $20 off and free shipping when you use the promo code CELEBRATION at brooklinen.com. In fact, Brooklinen is so confident that you'll love your new sheets that they offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all of their sheets and comforters. There's no reason not to give these sheets a try. The only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use the promo code CELEBRATION at brooklinen.com. That's brooklinen, B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com, promo code CELEBRATION. All right, let's get back to me and Joe Hagan talking about Sticky Fingers. What's fascinating about Winter is that it seems like he'd been preparing for this moment for his entire life. I mean, you talk about how he had been collecting, uh, like, papers and materials, kind of collecting this archive of his life, like going back to, like, to childhood, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, he's, you know, he's always had this sort of uh, epic sense of himself, you know, um, as having some kind of destiny for greatness, which, you know, in his yearbook in high school, he has this quote, you know, greatness knows itself. That was like one of his high school quotes, you know, in the yearbook. (laughs) 
So, um, and you know, if, if you believe that, or if you're the kind of person who's going to put that in your yearbook, you probably are also the kind of person who's going to save every last, you know, shred of paper from your life, the paper trail of your greatness. Right. And he did, he kept everything in the, his archive was, you know, you hear the, the proverbial drinking from a fire hose. Well, that's what it felt like for me at first, trying to figure out how I was going to wade through this huge 500 boxes of correspondence and everything else. So, um, but, you know, I figured out a method and, and got through it. I mean, like what, like what kind of stuff was in there? I mean, give me well, an the idea. first thing I ordered up from his archive, you would order boxes. You could search uh, on a little online database for names or, you know, subjects, and then it would show you all the boxes that contained stuff about that. So I ordered up all the John Lennon stuff. And I thought, well, I'll look through this and see if I can construct a book proposal. That was the initial idea. And uh, as I went through it, it was correspondence, letters, telegrams, postcards, um, you know, drawings that John Lennon had sent him, you know, the famous kind of draw, pen and ink drawings he would do of John and Yoko, you know, together. And, uh, you know, and at first I didn't really know exactly what I was looking at. It just at first it's just memorabilia. You know, you're looking at it and you're like, well, what is this about? You know, and then you kind of have to use your sort of journalistic uh, head to say, well, let's put these in a timeline, f- figure out what's going on here. And eventually, though, I started to see these. You get up to 1970, 71, and you see that Jan has done this gigantic interview with John Lennon, and then he's corresponding with Lennon about wanting to turn it into a book. And the next thing you know, you see a letter from John Lennon saying, no, I don't want you to do that. And the next thing you know, John, you know, Jan has um, published the book against John Lennon's will. And then now John Lennon is furious, right? And I was like, oh, wow, I've never heard anything about this. This is a new storyline. And so a lot of my investigations into the archive were trying to piece together, well, what are the little narratives that are going on inside uh, the story? And my initial, um, you know, the way that I got through uh, the archive was to make a decision about, I'm going to write about Jan's major relationships with the major people, you know, because imagine, I, you know how much like anecdotal stuff had to hit the cutting room floor because it's about like deep purple or something, you know, well, you know, deep purple, they're going to have to write their own book. So I have to figure out what are, and he didn't care about things like that. He cared about Mick Jagger, John Lennon, Bob Dylan. And of course there's Annie Leibovitz and Hunter Thompson. So I stuck with these major relationships and created the narratives out of them because those are the people that were in his social world, yeah. the people who, whose social world he wanted to be in. Right. Yeah, I mean, getting back to John Lennon, you write later in the book about the aftermath of John Lennon's murder in 1980 and how Jan Winner essentially told Yoko Ono that he would, like, take care of John Lennon's legacy. That's right. Make sure that he was remembered. And, you know, that's the stuff that I was most gravitated to in the book just as a music critic because you really realize that just how deliberate Jan Winner was about shaping the narrative of rock history uh, and how... um, how much it was based on his personal relationships. Like I didn't realize that he had, uh, you know, this sort of uh, enemies relationship with, with Paul Simon going, going back to the sixties and that this influenced how Rolling Stone covered Paul Simon like for years. Yeah. Like like, what was like, cause it's like Paul Simon like hit on a woman that Jan Wenner liked 
in the sixties or something. And then yeah, slept with his college, you know, quote unquote girlfriend. You know, there was this uh, woman that was sort of like the consummate hippie of, you know, San Francisco at the time who, uh, her name was Denise and who Jan wrote about in his sort of, uh, attempted novel. He had an attempted sort of Romana clay novel about his life at Berkeley in the sixties. And she was the main figure in it. So at one point, Jan was, um, let's see, Jan was in Hawaii one summer, uh, staying in his mother's house. And, uh, while he was away, Denise uh, had an affair with Paul Simon when pa- Simon and Garfunkel came through town. And it's all kind of amazing <laughs> stuff. But then Jan hears about it, and he's very upset because he had been pursuing her and wanted to pursue her, and he wanted to marry her, you know, later. Um, and uh, and it was Denise who noticed she she was the one that told me in the first three years of Rolling Stone there was hardly anything written about Paul Simon, and that Jan would sort of very reluctantly cover him. <laughs> so. You know, it's and then later on, Jan talks about how we've always had a prickly relationship, as he's quoted in the book, um, and how they, you know, had fights here and there. And of course, the most um, kind of uh, dramatic is Jan and Jane Wenner, his wife, uh, ex-wife, and talk about how Paul Simon tried, you know, fell in love with Jane Wenner and wanted to run away with her and told her to leave Jan and come with him. And of course, Jan resented this. Yeah. Um, so it's just. You know, that's why I was so interested. And that was in the late 70s that that happened, that's right? That's 76, yeah. yeah so I mean, this, is, this is why I was so interested in the personal relationships, because you learn that if you follow them and, and describe them, you understand sort of the output that people were reading about in Rolling Stone. You know? I was, uh, one of my favorite interview subjects in the book is Paul McCartney, yeah. uh, because um, it's clear that he resented uh, Jan Winner's pro-John Lennon bias. Yes. And it kept him away from the magazine for a long time. Yeah. And I think a lot of people would look at Paul McCartney as being one of the sort of Rolling Stone favored subjects, but at least from McCartney's point of view, it seems like he, he still has some distrust there uh, because of the John Lennon stuff. Well, yeah, and I was surprised about that too, just to think that you know, things that you would think would have been like 30 or 40 year old grudges would just kind of fade away, you know, but they don't. And especially at this stage, you know, part of the fortune that I had was writing about this, you know, writing this book now, because so many of these artists are at this legacy stage in their lives and they're trying, you know, they have nothing to lose. You know? <laughs> right. And uh, McCartney was obviously had a lot of kind of uh, stories to tell and nobody had really asked him about it, you know. I mean, it's not one of the obvious questions you're going to ask Paul McCartney in an interview. Right. Tell me about, you know, Jan Wenner and your relationship with Rolling Stone. Well, it turned out to be kind of a fertile subject, and so I was really shocked during the interview to hear him unloading all this stuff from his beef about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, which was fascinating, but even more just his general feeling that Jan was making him the second banana in well, the historical continuum. Well, I just want to fill people in this Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing is that John Lennon was inducted as a solo artist in the early 90s, like 92, 93, something like that. And um, Jan Winner asked Paul McCartney to induct him. And McCartney was like, well, I'll do it, but you have to put me in as a solo artist the next year. Right. So then McCartney, and Jan Winner says yes. And then McCartney reads this open letter to John Lennon at the ceremony. It's a very emotional speech. Everyone loves it. And then the next year, McCartney doesn't get in. <laughs> yes, 
that's right. And he says, I've opened up the papers and, you know, no induction. And he was like, he uses some expletives uh, about that. And uh, it's another like, I don't, I can't remember, maybe it was like four or five years later that he finally gets inducted. And, you know, he, uh, his daughter comes up and she's wearing a t-shirt that says about effing time. Right. Yeah. Well, and like Linda McCartney had just died too. And he, and Paul McCartney was like, well, you know, Linda wanted this. So she died uh, before yeah. it Brutal. happened. Brutal. I mean, like, so, yeah. did Jan Winter, I mean, was that just out of spite that he didn't put him in? Like, why not just put McCartney in the next year? I don't understand. Well, that. you know, a lot of this, well, here's, you know, Jan's argument. Okay. Just to be <laughs> perfectly fair here is he, he says, listen, there was never any world in which I had really that kind of control over the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, there's a board, there's a committee, there's votes, and I can't just control it. Well, a lot, nobody seems to believe that <laughs> um, from Paul McCartney across. You know, John Bon Jovi tries, has been trying for years to get in, and Jan dislikes him for reasons I don't totally understand. He thinks his music is terrible, but he, you know, but Bon Jovi campaigned to Jan to try to, you know, uh, get nom- a nomination, and Jan uh, gave him the stiff arm and, of course, now there's. If you, I think Bon Jovi's even out there saying, you know, Jan blaming Jan Wenner for the whole thing because everybody believes Jan has his, you know, thumb on the scale. Um, and you know, uh, so. And th- but this has also been true of the magazine, right? Of Rolling Stone. That, and Jan has always enjoyed that power. You know, I mean, that's partly what the book's about. Is he he reveled and loved and uh, you know thrived on being the gatekeeper, you know, choosing who gets to go on the cover, who's going to be in, in the sort of special sphere of my world and, and, you know, the pantheon, as it were. Right. And it's amazing. I mean, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing is just sort of an ongoing controversy because, I mean, there's so many bands from the 80s that haven't made it in, like post-punk bands, you know, bands yeah. that you think would be in this, like Sonic Youth or The Cure or Depeche Mode. Yeah. You can just, and if it's not Jan Winter doing that, I mean, Jan Winter is the one who gets blamed for that, right. that, those, that those bands aren't in. Um, but even if it's not him, it, it does seem like a very sort of entrenched baby boomer, Rolling Stone type bias that perpetuates that. So even if it's not him directly. Well, yeah, and it's the people he has around him who, you know, John Landau, and they're all the old kind of guard. Um, I think that's changed recently. They've tried to mix it up because I think they realized that the institution was suffering, you know, that they had to find new acts to include and they needed to get hip hop involved and all these other, you know, uh, make some progress because it was beginning to look like a stale institution, you know, I mean, um, and, you know, but and just the controversy has always been there because it's a political thing at the end of the day. If Steve Miller got inducted and he was still yelling about it during the induction right right uh very very bitter about it um of course those guys have had a long again a long history of disliking each other and so it's all very um it, it that's the beauty of the book for me was just being able to illuminate how the personal was the historical in this instance you know with with the, in the rock and roll world and through Jan's life and you know? and also just realizing you know again as a as a critic and looking at it and being like how much the critical canon is influenced just by like, oh, this guy slept with my girlfriend 40 years ago. So like, he's always going to be worse than Dylan. Like he's always going to be number two because of that, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Um, it's amazing. uh, 
Um, I, I want to ask you too about Mick Jagger. I mean, and, and this has been, I, I feel like that chapter, I think that was in New York Magazine. They, they ran uh, that bit about, uh, you talk about the relationship between Jan Winter and Mick Jagger. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and again, this has kind of turned into a joke over the years when people want to disparage Rolling Stone's reviews section. They always talk about Goddess in the Doorway, the 2000, I think, yeah. three Mick Jagger solo record getting a five-star review. That's always the example that gets brought up, and uh, that seems like a fairly transparent Jan Winner yeah. uh, maneuver there. I mean, was there a relationship, or is there a relationship? I mean, is that a genuine friendship, you think, or is it, or was it, or is it purely transactional? Well, it's hard to separate them, really. I mean, if um, when you accumulate five decades of ups and downs and, you know, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductions, and, you know, Jan used to, like, um, throw parties. He would be sort of like a party planner for Mick Jagger when he came to town to have his new solo record. Jan would, like, curate a guest list and have throw a party for him, you know. I mean, it was partly they were partners in something. You know, they both are businessmen who have like-minded businesses and collaborate. they're collaborators, right? And so in that sense... Sure, they're friends in that sense, I, but I don't think that Mick Jagger knows Jan Winter very well, and I don't know how well Jan knows uh, Mick. You know, I remember asking uh, who was Mick Jagger's um, the tragic, uh, you know, death of his girlfriend, um, whose name is escaping me at this moment. You know, I asked Jan, "Well, tell me about her." I mean, did you? He said, "I really know her. I don't really know much about what happened." There. You know, he doesn't. These are not, you know, intimate friendships. Yeah. In, in that way, in fact, there's a you know a quote that we sort of put on the back of the uh, back copy of the book, where I remember asking Jan, I mean Mick, tell me more about Jan. I need to know what he's like. You know, tell me what your um, experience of him is. And he goes, you know, he says you probably know him better than I do. That's that was Mick Jagger to me. Yeah. And I thought that was hilarious because I was like, you've known him for 50 years for Christ's sakes. I mean, but that's not the kind of friendships they had. So it they were pragmatic you know, friendships that were transactional at their heart, right? And that's sort of borne out in the um, genesis of the whole relationship, which is, you know, the Rolling Stones lawyer sending a cease and desist order to Jan telling him, you can't publish a magazine called Rolling Stone because you're, uh, you know, getting commercial benefit from our name, right? Yeah. And this became the sort of subtext of their relationship. You know, it just occurred to me as you were talking about this Jagger interview that you could do a sequel to this book where you just ran like unabridged interviews uh, that you did with these people. Uh, yeah. You know, like I would want to read that. Like, yeah, because... yeah. Well, I'm I'm going to I'm going to be posting on my website JoeHagan.net um, some audio outtakes from the interviews. Okay, because it... um, which I have a bunch sort of teed up. I just have to put them up, and I'll be doing that. Um, you know, in the next uh, couple of weeks. I mean, did Jan help you get, because you talked to everybody. I mean, you know, Jagger, McCartney, Springsteen, Bono, like all of, you know, and obviously all the Rolling Stone people. Like, did Jan help you get those people or how hard was it to get all these people? No, on the it was record? easy. I mean, he, he wanted them to talk and he, and he often would say, you know, in emails to them, which he'd CC me on, he would say, tell them everything. Don't hold back. You know, and it was almost as if, he was, you know, it's, this is the moment. Let's just do it, you know. And uh, I'm not sure what he expected was going to come out of that. <laughs> um, 
but in in many instances it was uh it wasn't probably what he was hoping yeah you know? well um, i was gonna say like it's not i mean i it's not like jagger is ripping Jan winter in the book but it's not like like you said it's not like he's talking about them being best friends i mean it it is a fairly you know sober look at their relationship and all the people are very candid uh in the book yeah i mean I just wonder if that was part of his disappointment that they didn't say what he was hoping that they would yeah, say. Yeah, I don't know. I, I hope that one day I'll get the chance to ask him about that. I mean, I think, frankly, that it's probably a combination of things that's upsetting him. I'd be curious if he actually read the entire thing, you know? Yeah. Um, I can imagine him throwing it across the room at some <laughs> point. But, um, and it may be just sort of like uh, the way that I connect him and the culture that he came out of to the current culture and Donald Trump, which is, you know, that's a, it's a tough, um, connection to make, but I felt like that I had to, um, and you know, that may not make him happy, but I mean, there's an amazing kind of little moment at the uh, end of the book. This was towards the end. I remember one of our last interviews, I said, I need to get you to comment on the fact that since Donald Trump was elected, all there's like four or five Us Weekly covers in a row that all had the Trump first family on them. You know, he started to follow the Trump family as a sequence, and it wasn't really, it was not hard-hitting, you know. <laughs> it was just tabloid stuff. And the first one was meet the first family, and they stood for a portrait, right? right? Um, and I said, well, you know, on the other hand, he's publishing Rolling Stone with Matt Taibbi uh, railing against Donald Trump. And I said, well, you know, how do you justify that? And he goes, I have doubled sales, you know, yeah. it's what people want to read about. And that's Jan, at, in, in, you know, in his essence, he's a publisher, you know, he's an opportunist. Right. And in some sense, that's like what the book's about. And maybe Jan probably doesn't perceive himself that way. I mean, how, you know, he yeah. wants to think of himself as a guy. He said this in interviews this year. Uh, that he was helping kind of um, catalyze a social movement. Right. Which I read that, and I was like, wow. I mean, I guess you could think that, but, I mean, you published Us Weekly. You published, you know, John Travolta on the cover of Rolling Stone. It's like it's a celebrity culture, and, and that's what he really loved, right? And it was so transparent that that's what he loved was the celebrities. Right. Um in any event, he may not view himself that way or want to at the 50-year mark when he's trying to do a victory lap here. Well, and, and I think in terms of music coverage, he made it about celebrity, you know, and how and, and sort of the same cast of characters being recycled you know, throughout time. Yeah. Um, just to kind of as a as a wrap up question here, you know, there, one of the anecdotes from his childhood that stands out in the book is you know, he has this very troubled relationship with his mother, yeah. and his mother ends up leaving the family. And when she leaves, she says to him, "You're on your own, Buster Brown." Yeah, which is a heartbreaking story. Very. Is that his rosebud? Would you say? I, I would say so. You know, if you're going to circle around one, that's it. Um, and in, in a way, it wasn't difficult to, you know, observe. It was just very um, transparent that that was the truth. And, you know, a couple of Jan's uh, girlfriends, one from high school and one from college, um, later went on to become uh, psychotherapists. And both of them were just, you know, called it exactly that. They said, listen, it was all about his mother. You know, he his ambition, his just kind of 
desperation for affirmation that he wasn't he never got from his mother and you know it was all there in black and white in the story and his correspondence with his mother and his correspondence with other people and he would tell people in the 70s later on when people were kind of wondering about his behavior and his personality he would say well you know my my parents uh fought over who had to take me not over who got to have me <laughs> right, right. And that was, you know, gets to the heart of his insecurity. And of course, you know, these uh, guys like Jan, um, who kind of sometimes grieve, uh, achieve great things, or, uh, are often driven by that kind of deep insecurity. Right. Well, Joe, the book, Sticky Fingers, great book. If you are at all interested in Rolling Stone, rock criticism, Jan Winter, cocaine stories, the whole <laughs> lot of it, I you got to read this book. It's an essential read. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for talking with me, man. It's been great. Oh, man, I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, take care. All right, that was me and Joe digging into Jan Winter's life, digging into the background of Rolling Stone. And like I said at the top, uh, you know, if you have any interest at all in you know, not just Rolling Stone, but just media in general or music media in general, I think you're going to get a lot out of this book if you read it. If anything, it has lots of great cocaine stories. You know, famous people doing blow at parties in the 70s. Who doesn't like to read that stuff? That's like the stuff that I love to read more than anything. I love to read about people doing cocaine. So <laughs> that can be my blurb for the book, Joe Hagan, if you're listening. Read this book if you like to read about people doing cocaine. Okay, that's my blurb. Guys, thank you so much for listening. I just want to give some ups to recent stories that I've written on uprocks.com. I, I think I talked about this last week. I recently wrote about my favorite new band. They're called Gang of Youths. They're out of Australia. Um, I talked about this on last week's podcast, and I said it was going to be up the previous week, but it wasn't up at that time. It went up last week. So you want to read that story. I also wrote about the Rolling Stone 10th anniversary special, uh, which is a tangent in Joe Hagen's book. We didn't talk about it in the interview. It, it is the worst rock and roll show that's ever aired on television. It was a variety show meant to commemorate the 10th anniversary of Rolling Stone. It's hilariously bad. I wrote about it on Uproxx. You're going to want to check out that story, and you're going to want to check out the special, which is on YouTube. Uh, it's really funny and really great. Otherwise, guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you again for your support of this podcast. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. Um, it's always great when I hear from listeners talking about the podcast, talking about what you like. Sometimes you talk about what you don't like. Sometimes you talk about the words I mispronounce. I mispronounce a lot of words on this podcast. I'm trying to get better at that. I joked uh, last week that we're going to do a retrospective when we hit our 100th episode, and it's just going to be a montage of all the words I've mispronounced on this podcast. It's going to be a three-hour episode. Um, <laughs> but anyway, thank you so much for your support and for talking about us on, on social media and for leaving us nice reviews on iTunes, all this stuff. Uh, it enables us to keep doing what we're doing. So thank you again, guys. Otherwise, that is it. For this week's Celebration Rock podcast, we will be back again next week. See ya.